You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. I'm Zach McNeese, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Oh, hi, Zach. Is this one of those summer archive shows again? Yeah, I'm hosting the show today. For the rest of the summer, every other week, different members of our team are featuring two of their favorite interviews from the archives. And who were your guests? Well, today we have Penn Jillette and David Blaine. Wow, that sounds really good. Good luck, Zach. Thanks, Alec. I've always been fascinated by magicians. It's an intriguing sector of the entertainment world that can turn an audience of any age into children, eyes wide on the edge of their seats. Today, we're revisiting interviews with two of my favorite magicians, Penn Jillette and David Blaine. David Blaine's magic is stunning. Some of my favorite performances of his are from his Street Magic series, where Blaine walks up to people on the street and performs card tricks and other illusions so mesmerizing, people are often left staring in shock, eyes wide, almost in terror, wondering how it's possible to have witnessed what they've just seen with their own eyes. The other side of the world of magic and illusion is the theatrical show. Our first guest today, Penn Jillette, performs as one half of the world-famous duo Penn & Teller. Together, Penn & Teller star in one of the longest-running shows in Las Vegas history. Penn Jillette is also a musician, juggler, and inventor. A towering figure at 6'6", Jillette is an outspoken atheist and libertarian who, perhaps not surprisingly, grew up in a traditionally religious household. I was raised a Congregationalist. Uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, Massachusetts, Western Mass. And I uh, went to church when I got to be uh, junior high age. My parents said I could go to youth group instead of Sunday morning services I wanted to, and I went to youth group. And I believe I was the only one who took it seriously. And the minister spoke with us about religion, and I read the Bible, and then came in with some questions. (laughs) And uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful minister who was uh, very open and would talk with me for hours. I did this exactly the way the church would want you to do it. There was no horrible rebellion. There was no fuck you. There was no screaming. There was no raping, being molested. I have not one horror story. I have just kind, wonderful, sweet people and an intellectual discussion. And I went, you know, I, I don't like 
the idea of putting God before my family. My family's more important to me. And I don't like the idea of there being a love greater than the love I have for my family and friends. And I do believe that humans uh, are good on their own without this. And I don't think anything happens after we die. And my minister, there's no way to tell this story without making him look like a goofball. But he's not a goofball. This is a sensible thing. He called up my mom and dad and said, you know, Penn is doing wonderful in youth group, but we're having discussions, and I believe he's doing a better job at converting the other children to atheism than I am with Christianity. Yeah. So why don't, winning. why don't you just not have him come to youth group anymore? Yeah. And I talked to my, uh, my parents, and uh, uh, my dad, till the day he died, prayed for me. And would say— What, what to, faith was he? Uh, like congregationalist. Said, yeah, congregationalist. Right. And he would say to me, uh, all— stuff all the time, like, well, Penn, you are such a good Christian. And I'd say, except for that not accepting Christ thing, Dad. But my, my dad used to say, and this is, you know, just a, a tribute to how—my dad was the most, most wonderful man I've ever met. My dad would say to me, I'm going to have to work so hard after I die to get you and your mother into heaven. Yes. But I'm going to do it. I just yeah. have to work very, very hard. You could make it so much easier for me. Yes. You have to know that my mom and my dad never said hell or damn or any obscenity they were hardcore. in the house. Hardcore. No alcohol, no hell or damn. When I started doing card tricks, my, like fa- my, house at my, all. my father was like, uh, you won't be gambling, though. You can do card tricks, but I, I don't like having a deck of cards in the house. I would say, Dad, I'm just doing manipulations and tricks. Well, that's fine. Now, when you, you, people obviously, when they think of you, they think of you as part of a tandem, uh-huh. and your partner. It's always mystifying to me the mute uh-huh. performer. What's that like for him to play that role all these years? Well, now? he it's thirty years, forty. It's, good God! And uh, it is a very. Does he uh, never shut up when he's home? Does he like? Uh, well, that's he, that's the joke. Yeah, everybody in the crew will tell you. Uh, Penn speaks on stage, doesn't speak off stage. Teller doesn't speak on stage, never shuts up. Right. When if you were to come to one of you our flip. rehearsals, uh, it's me sitting over in the corner reading the paper. And tell her talking to everybody, handling everything. Tell yeah. us essentially. Olivia Lucille Ball, the told director. Me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's recounting. And, uh, recounting. But, you know, tell her, uh, direct Shakespeare. You know, he's, uh, he's directing uh, The Tempest in uh, Chicago, a wonderful production uh, with real magic. He in loves it. acting in theater. Uh, yeah, uh, but more, more directing and more writing. And he's very articulate. He was a high school Latin and Greek teacher, and he is a, uh, a classic scholar. Where does he live? Where is his home? Vegas. So you guys both live in the yeah, same? Yeah, about uh, five miles apart. Yeah, and, and and you have a theater that's your own theater. Yeah, it's, it's like the that pen- whole Celine Dion thing. It's the Penitentiary Theater. Yeah, the it's, it's really and nice. you're obligated. The contract is how many months of the year? Oh, until we die. I mean, we no, do. See, how many, oh, how many do, shows do, a year? Uh, we do forty six weeks a year. Forty. No. Yeah. When you, if we ever cross so your mind, if you ever, no, we don't have time off. <laughs> oh my God. And we sometimes do runouts on the on the day on the day we supposedly. Forty six weeks in Vegas. We do about. 250 shows a year, a little more. It's a pretty easy schedule, but I make it as hard as possible because I play uh, upright bass jazz bebop for an hour before the show, right. and then we meet everybody after the show. So we turn a cushy 90-minute gig into three and a half like hours. like Steve Martin. Yeah. yeah. You have your own yeah. band and everything. Yeah, yeah, I do. When Steve's in town, I, I love to talk music with him. When you were a child, I mean, I, I grew up 
And uh, anything magic or anything uh, of the uh, paranormal, if you will, mm-hmm. Yuri Geller, Kreskin, all those things. I mean, I grew up glued to that. I mm-hmm. love that. Were you glued to that kind of stuff? Or uh, when did it come into your life? I was, uh, I was horrified uh, by Kreskin. Um, I believed when he went on, he went on a television show. And he did an experiment, as he called it. And I believed this was an area of science. I was fascinated by science, an area of science that uh, I, I wanted to study. And my parents, who I said weren't wealthy, bought me was little ESP game, this piece of shit, uh, with a little pendulum in the ESP cards. And then I would do that with my parents over and over. And then um, because I was becoming a juggler and practicing all the time, in the library, if you cast your mind back to the Dewey Decimal System, yes. you know that the 900s are— Religion, <laughs> magic, juggling, they're all there together, which is great. My whole life is in the 900s of the New Decimal System. I happened to see a Dunninger book, The Mentalist from the 40s. I don't know him. Yeah, he's, he's, he was a, the most popular mentalist, mind reader. And I opened the book on magic, and there, in there, was the description of how to do the trick I'd seen Kreskin do as an experiment. And that moment in the library was a complete breakdown. I mean, I went, I could not believe that a scientist, which is the way I perceived it, had lied to me. And I went home, I was humiliated in front of my parents. By the way, here's the birth of the bullshit show too, by the way. Absolutely, it's everything, my whole life. And I also pretty much at that point went from straight A's to failing. No. Because I said to my physics teachers- What's the meaning of it all? uh, Scientists lie. Why am I listening to you? Scientists lie. What Scientists lie. And I hated magic. Hated magic because why would you be fooling people? It's hard enough to figure out about the world. Life is hard enough. Yeah. Why, why are you doing that? And my parents, you know, would try to console me. It, it's just a stupid little game, Ben. Calm down. <laughs> it's okay. No, no, I'm a juggler. I'm not a magician. I'm not da, 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 yeah. all of this. And it wasn't until I met Teller, who I met when I was in high school. Uh, Teller's seven years older than me. And Amazing Randy. And they explained to me the very simple thing. That if you put a proscenium around something, it's all of a sudden moral. If Robert De Niro runs around New York saying he's Travis Bickle and he's a cab driver, yeah. he is insane. You put him away. If he does it in a movie, we give him an Oscar. he's a genius. Yes. <laughs> and the same thing with magic. If you come to our show, all the stuff we do would be immoral if you take that proscenium So away. you did a lot on the street. You were on the street. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but always as a juggler. There. Right. It wasn't uh, so. We tried to follow this very strict moral code in the Penn and Teller show, which is what I call the sawing a woman in half code. Sawing a woman into half. Describe that. Which is, we saw a woman into have halves on stage. You see that. Right. No one leaves the theater thinking they've witnessed a murder. Right. Nobody. That is my rule for all magic. If I'm going to do a mind reading trick. You cannot leave the theater thinking that I can read minds. It must be exactly the same as not witnessing a murder. There's a lot of intellectual and moral gymnastics that need to be done in order to, to follow that code. And Teller and I, a big part of our writing tricks is trying to be intellectually honest. So what is required of the street performer that you had? Some oh, well, people I, are on the street I, and they score. Well, I, you know, I— uh, with my parents' permission, you know, left home when I was 18 and was essentially homeless, hitchhiking around the country, hippie. And I supported myself juggling on streets and juggling in bars. And uh, you need to uh, you need to gather a crowd and you need to collect the money. So there's a bit of a barker quality what's, to what's, it. Yeah, or, or as they call it, the carny talker. Um, I was a really, really good 
street performers. As a matter of fact, Teller, uh, I'm not sure how to take this, but Teller always says, you know, the best thing you've ever done in your career was your 12-minute street act. <laughs> there was really nothing better than that. Uh, Where was the money good? What was the place that was like? I had a rule that I would only work places that it was illegal because I thought that was sexy. Right. And I worked Head House Square in Philadelphia and uh, knew all the police officers. And the police officers would come to my show and say, the second someone can convince me that you're begging, I'll arrest you. <laughs> Until then, you're doing a show. Right. And I would do, I, I, I was making so much money. I was 19 years old, and I was making so much money street performing. I went to an accountant, and I said, to file taxes. I said, I want to file my taxes on the money I made. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm a street juggler. And he said, how much do you make? And I told him. And I said, I have, you know, I, I, I keep records of every hat I pass and how much I make, and I have it all laid out here, and I, I have when I brought it to the bank and when I did everything. And he said, uh, and you're 19? I said, yeah. And he said, uh, if you go to the IRS and tell them you made this much money juggling, they will arrest you as a drug dealer. <laughs> they will assume you're, you're a drug lying. dealer. And then he said, and oh, by the way, I think you're a drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. Right. By the way, I don't believe You seem it. like a drug dealer. And I said, well, no, no, I'm really making this. He goes, take the money, don't put it in the bank, keep it in cash, walk away. And when does that change? Meaning then you're doing that. Then I put all that money. Well, first of all, totally ruined my voice because I'd work for 500 people outside, no training, just scream and put chloris. In all weather. Put chloroseptic in a Coke can and just go. What was your costume? Did you have a costume? Oh, yeah. My rule on street performing was you have to look so that people are embarrassed to give you less than a 20. So, so I, wore, that? I wore a $3,000 watch when I street performed. I wore a really expensive suit, really expensive pants, yeah. was perfectly groomed, much more. You than look more I like Michael Douglas than the Artful Dodger. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, right. absolutely. My idea was I want to make as much money as Johnny Carson, so I'll be out there looking like Johnny Carson. So the idea was I would gather a crowd and you'd come up and go, man, he's really funny. He's really a good juggler. You'd be with your date and go, I, I can't give him 50 cents. Yeah. Oh, I got a 20. There Two you rumpled up singles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. And uh, then Teller would alternate with me in the same spot, which we kind of owned. And the, um, the local uh, hoodlum children uh, <laughs> loved us. Because what I would do is I'd, you know, have them take care of my money and buy props for me and take care of that kind of stuff, trusted them. So anybody else that came in to take that spot, the police arrested them and the local kids harassed them. So we had that spot to ourselves. Yeah. And I would go to all the store owners that are around there. I would go up after every show and say, you're getting enough traffic in and out. I'm not blocking. Everything's okay. Yeah. The police officers liked us. You joined the Chamber of Commerce. Yes, there. pretty much. Yeah. And uh, we did that very well. Then, then I really got interested in doing, uh, Tell and I wanted to do a full evening show. We thought that the ideas that we had were more than just the 12 minutes. So we took all the money that we'd made street performing and put it into buying lights and sound and, and producing And went where shows. first? You're off the street and you go where? Uh, our very first uh, shows were at the Walnut Street Theater. They had a space that would seat like 75 people. And they had put that aside with a grant for experimental theater. And the experimental theater company <laughs> uh, could not get it together in three months to put an experimental show on. Now, you know, they couldn't in three months get it together. So they came to Teller, who they'd gone to college with, and said, you're doing your little show. Can you just put it in 
and we'll let you have the theater for free. Now, they were getting grants. We could have the theater for free. So we put the show up, and we charged whatever it was, $10, and we got wonderful reviews and put the place up. And then the uh, the head of the Walnut Street Theater called us in and said, uh, so the theater company up there, they uh, they gave you the uh, they gave you the space, and how much money did they give you to put this on? We said, oh, nothing. They just gave us a space, which is a big help, man. Huge help. Not to pay rent. We could really make money on this. We're supporting ourselves. This is terrific. We're getting going. He goes, yeah, yeah. And they were paid money to put a show on in there, and they just give it to you free. So you guys are welcome to use the theater whenever you want, and they're losing all their grants. So we became oh. we became the people that killed, killed experimental yeah. theater in that particular. And they were like, oh. "What did you do to us?" We said, right. "We didn't even we didn't know yeah. we were supposed to lie. We could have said we can't make money in there, but as it turned out, we could make money. You know, in, in a hundred seat theater, we we could fill it up and make money doing eight shows a week. Um, so you 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 perform inside and you start to do the show. And what kind of a show was it back then? Well, we did. It was a three person show then. We had a, we had a third partner who did classical music, and it was called the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society. Uh-huh. And uh, we got uh, we did a thing that was so nuts. Keller was in charge of the, putting the ads together and putting them in the paper, and I was in charge of getting critics to at the show. So I just put on my leather jacket and went you know, to the list of people that were critics and walked up to their desks and said, hi, I'm Penn. We're doing a show next Friday. We can give you free tickets. Would you come and review our show? <laughs> to the, you know, to the head critic of the Philadelphia Inquirer who went, what are you doing here? <laughs> no, you go through your press agent and do this. And he said, why should I come see your show? And I went, because I can do this. And I picked up his little spindle that he put papers on and rammed it in my head and jammed it in my nose, doing a thing called blockhead, an old carny trick. And, you know, and then took out a cigarette lighter and did a little bit of fire-eating stuff and said, come see our show. And he was not supposed to review little shows. He was the big critic, but he came to see our show. And then he wrote a rave review, mm. and uh, which pissed off everybody because other big shows were opening. And then Teller said, you have to call him up and thank him. So I said, okay. So I called him up and said, thank you for your review. It's going to sell a lot of tickets. We're doing really well. And he said, did you like the review? And I said, well, it's going to sell a lot of tickets. It's going to do really well. And he goes, wait a minute. Did you like, did you like the review? I said, well, it's selling a lot of tickets and I appreciate it. Thank you very much, sir. And he said, what are you saying? I said, I'm saying it's awful. You don't understand a thing we were doing. It's all, you say kind stuff about us, but it, I, I did this show so someone would understand it. You missed the point of everything I was saying. It broke my heart. And there was a long pause, and he <laughs> said, uh, can I do an interview with you for like a few hours, and then I will uh, write another review? I'll see the show again. And I said, Sure. I told Teller, Teller said, did you thank him? I said, yeah, he, he, I told him his review sucked. <laughs> Teller said, oh, what are you doing? And he, uh, two weeks later, wrote another bigger review that said— More to your liking, I This is a retraction of my previous review. Oh, good God. I said they were wonderful, and they are, but everything else I said was wrong. <laughs> wow. And then he went in and wrote a whole other review. So now— How do I get people to do that for We've got a hundred-seat theater— that have had two front page of the entertainment section reviews within two weeks. 
So all of a sudden, we're You're selling we're, tickets. We sold out, you know, well, 100 seats. Yeah. You know, selling 100 Still. seats is not that hard, but it was huge to us. Yeah. And then a producer saw us there, and we went out and played in uh, San Francisco for three years at a theater there that was uh, 198 seats or something. I remember reading a, an article once about, because I'm thinking about Vegas and, and what mm. I know about Vegas acts. And I've been to Vegas a few times, but not, not a lot. I'm not yeah. a gambler. I go see shows. So How'd like, you miss that vice? Wait, I, I, exactly. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I never, I never dug gambling. With your background, it right. seems like, you know, the... Well, I always yeah. would have, I would go and people would gamble and I think, and I lost and I thought, I, I can't afford this. Oh, I don't have money to throw away. And I'd see guys who do that. I mean, I don't want to name names, but I got some pretty high-end friends of mine who really blow a lot of dough on that. And I go, God, how do you do that? And it's so irresponsible. There are like, so many to, other ways to waste money. Well, yeah. I mean, exactly. I'm like, well, I'm like, like boats. I yeah. like boats. That's, <laughs> that, that's the, worse than gambling in so many because you can drown. But I was reading this article once, this wonderful old article about Wayne Newton, and they said how, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the big punchline was that the guy goes and he, and he takes uh, with a stopwatch the measure of the show, and Newton would come out for the encore and say, Hey, you know, we, we never do this. I never do this, but I just love this crowd. I never play this song. Uh -huh. But, you know, I'm just going to throw all my, uh, in my, my, my preferences to the wind here. And he comes and, he, and he, we never stay for another song. I'm going to do one more song. Yeah. And he just teases the audience. And the guy, and every show, the show exact, ended exactly the same yeah, time. Exactly. The show was exactly like yeah. one hour yeah. and and fourteen minutes. Oh, Wayne Newton! Did you ever see Wayne Newton's show? There? No, oh, no. It was it was just great. No, I'm sure it was phenomenal. Uh, yeah, it's probably, I mean, it probably still is. I haven't seen him in a few. But years. the idea of the show being for the man who you and your partner do two hundred and fifty shows a year, regardless of the fact that it's in your own space, and mm -hmm. you know, it's it's obviously it's a very lucrative thing. Is 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 like, do you go out there and there's a menu like a playlist? Oh no 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 no! We do we do you, the same show. You do the same yeah. show. Now we're always writing new stuff. So right. when I say the same show, it's the same show as the night before, not the same show as the year before. Right. Um, and I love that. You know, there's this thing that happens um, in the variety arts. You know, uh, I'm just old enough. I'm 60. You're an Agva. I'm, yes, I am. I am. <laughs> no, I'm Agva. No, I am an Agva. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm a proud Agva man. <laughs> um, I'm 60. So when I was learning to juggle at 15, 16, 17, I could just meet the guys who worked vaudeville their whole life, right? I could just meet the guys who wrote a show when they were 17 years old and were doing it when they were 80 yeah. and hadn't changed it. Yeah. Perform with Jolson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there were guys, jugglers, you know, because juggling, it's not like music. You can't do a whole different routine with juggling. You learn that trick. It takes you six years to learn the trick. That's the trick you're going to be doing for a while. You know, you know how to throw a cigarette behind your back, catch it in your mouth, and throw a match, catch it, and then light them. That's what you're going to do. That's your closer for the rest of your life. And there's something you're able to do after doing something 10,000 times, not 1,000, 10,000 times, where you're able to communicate with the audience in ways that you don't even know what's giving them the information. When you first do a gag, you know, one of the things you see on Saturday Night Live, you know, I always want to say, boy, I'd like to see this sketch after they did it 10,000 times. As Bob Dylan said, I want to play guitar without tricks. You know, all the tricks would be gone, and it yeah. would just be the material that you're just selling. Yeah. And I just love that. So Teller and I try to be very conscientious, and there's some stuff that's only a few months old, but there's other stuff that we've been doing 40 years. I'm Zach McNeese, in for Alec Baldwin, on our summer series from the Here's the Thing archives. Alec's been hosting these kinds of surprising and in-depth conversations with performers, policymakers, and authors for more than a decade. 
If you want more, be sure to check out the complete list at heresthething.org. After the break, we'll hear more of Alex's conversation with Pendulette. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Zach McNeese, and this is Here's the Thing. One of Pendulette's favorite weekly pastimes is movie night at his home where a less-than-traditional viewing experience ensues. 
Tuesday nights after my show, people come over, and we watch a in movie. In Vegas. In Vegas, over my house. They have a killer screening room. Yeah, and we have about uh, sometimes 20, 30 people come over. You love movies. and uh, Well, yes, but this is not showing the love of movies. This is just 30 people screaming. Right. And people think when they come over that it's going to be witty. It's not witty. Yeah. It's simply obscenity. Right. It's simply spewing out the bile from the week. It is a, is a group. It's a group encounter so session. So you mock the movie. Much more than mock. More, more than mock. And now we're in the middle of uh, 24. We're watching every season of 24. Oh, fantastic. And I am so trying to convince Kiefer to come by one night. Because <laughs> I would love to have him he sitting there screaming. Yes. Screaming. Easier to scream than Kiefer. How, how, how tall are you exactly, Kiefer? You know, just, we, we, and it's just, it's just screaming. It's just getting, because, you know, I tend to, because I have, my children are nine and ten years old, and because I do so many shows and have so much stuff going on, I really don't get a chance to hang out with friends. So this is my two hours a week. Yeah. That just it's what your poker game. What some yeah exactly it's what yeah. some guys would do with poker. Yeah. It's just it's just yelling. So when did you become this arbiter of bullshit? When did when did it, it just the things that you strike you as bullshit? That's whatever word you want to use, disingenuous uh-huh. or false or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, did, did it, it, it sat in your craw how long before you decided well, you I got to do a TV show out of this? We uh, we have always wanted to do a skeptical TV show, always, and we started pitching that in the eighties. Tell her too. Yeah, and we're because we're both. You know, there's two very strong schools in magic. There's the um, Houdini school which is the, um, we are, uh, or, or as Robert Houdin said, we are actors playing the parts of magicians. Uh, it also starts with uh, in the 16th century, the discovery of witchcraft, which is the first book written that says this stuff is fake. We are doing tricks. There's that whole school that believes that the magician is someone who helps us study how we ascertain truth. In other words, I've studied trickery, so let's talk about the truth. Then there's a whole other school, which is, you know, David Blaine, for instance, who's a friend of mine and who we get along with well. We have a very strong philosophical disagreement. He believes that the magician's job is to distort reality, that you must leave his show thinking things that aren't true. Mm -hmm. He believes that strongly and can make a very cogent argument for it, which I disagree with. But I know, I like him. Um, There's those two schools. And Tell and I have always been strongly in the Houdini, Amazing Randy camp on that. And, I don't, and P.S., I don't see a David Blaine theater in Vegas, by the way. <laughs> so I don't know who I'm, I'm putting my money on. Although we had him on the show and he was uh, great. He's great. He's wonderful. He's a great, great magician and, uh, and a great guy. Um, so we've been pushing this. And I would go in and say, the nuts always have the passion and the scientists always have this low-key, measured way. What we will give you in bullshit is we will do the best to give you the scientific point of view done with the passion of a nut. And I'm willing to give you all that passion and rip my heart open and be wrong and go off half-cocked. But I'm going to do it for the other side. And the, and the, and the topics came to you. Like, what was the first show? Well, the first show uh, is very complex because the first show uh, was about talking to the dead. And we conceived the show to uh, attack, you know, John Edward and those people who say they can communicate with the dead. And I conceived it intellectually. And then while thinking about it, my mom died at the age of 90 in 2000. And we started doing the show in 2001. And this happened, uh, forgive me for, uh, I'm only in this one way comparing myself to Houdini. But Houdini had this intellectual dislike 
for people who claimed to talk to the dead. And it was a lot of Houdini's posturing. I do better tricks than them. I do tricks no one can figure out. Their tricks aren't that good. And then his mom dies. And um, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Sherlock Holmes writer, who was a big believer in, in, in spiritualist, mm-hmm. Houdini wanted to be around him because Houdini um, uh, was the son of a rabbi, but, uh, but was not well-educated. And Arthur Conan Doyle was very respected and very well-educated. And Houdini was thrilled to be traveling in that circle. He was cheap carny trash traveling the circle with the intellectuals. He loved Eric Weiss. Yeah. And his mother, Houdini's mother died. And uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's wife did automatic writing, okay, which was you would just, without thinking, you would just write, and it was the spirits talking through you. And Arthur Conan Doyle said, well, you know, you miss your mom so much because Houdini was— uh, another similarity, a mama's boy, which I was. I was very close to my mom. And Houdini, you know, okay, this is a little dangerous. You're going to talk to my mom, but okay. So his wife sat down and then did automatic writing. And Conan t- Doyle's wife. Yeah. Ooh, and at wow. the top of the page— What I would have given to be, to be there. —was a cross. And the first words were, dear Harry. <laughs> and then it went on. Now, what Arthur Conan Doyle's wife didn't know was that his mother didn't speak English. <laughs> he was born in Budapest. He claimed to be from Appleton, Wisconsin. He was actually born in Budapest. He was the son of a rabbi. <laughs> Cross at the top, probably not right. And his mother never once called him Harry. That was his stage name. So Houdini felt what it feels like to have your image of someone you love distorted. And Houdini went apeshit. And then the second half of his career was all busting these people. Debunking. And so we were going to do Talking to the Dead. And I, we did that show, uh, you know, within a year of my mom dying. And so it was very, very passionate. Because the point that people don't make is a lot of times the people that do this communication with the dead, they say that they're bringing solace to people. The most valuable thing I have in my life is the memories of my family. My mom and dad, also, you know, my children, the new memories I'm making, but let's let's go with from the past, the memories of my mom and dad. If I come to you grief-stricken about my mom and you claim that you're communicating with her and then we have some sort of communication, what you have done, you can call it bringing solace, but you can also see it as distorting my memory. You've now said something that she never said. (laughs) And I cannot think of a crueler thing. In order to get power and make money, you're doing this. And it's actually the most valuable thing. It's like lying about me while I'm alive. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. And uh, it's, it's horrible. I am naturally not cynical. And when you're naturally not cynical, you bump into this stuff all the time. Sure. I tend to uh, I tend to be skeptical but not cynical. And people always put those together. And they are very different emotional states. You know, skepticism is, is cold and cynicism is hot. You know, cynicism is uh, everybody's full of shit, everybody's lying to us, everybody's doing this. Skepticism is let's get to the truth. And those are two very different things. You know, and I, I talked to Bill Maher about this because Bill Maher is proudly cynical. And I am proudly skeptical, and we are different things. Mm-hmm. It's a very different well put, reaction. Well put. And um, 
And I think that if you get too Pollyanna, and I am very Pollyanna, I am much too optimistic. I'm much too straightforward. It's one of the things you get. You get with a with a perfect. You know, everybody in show business complains I'm from a dysfunctional family. I drop out of those conversations. You know, my uh, my dad never got the memo that dads are supposed to give you conditional love. (laughs) He never got that. He was just unconditional love and Mm. supportive and even things he didn't understand. My parents tried from the time I was 17 until the day they died, tried to get me to cut my hair. And the really funny part of it was, and this boy, this made me laugh, is my mother, when she was uh, in her 80s, and I was in my 40s. My mother actually said, I just love this moment. My mom's sitting there and she goes, you know, Penn, when you were a young man, having the long hair was fine. Yeah. But now that you're older, I mean, you're older than middle-aged and you have some gray in there, you need to get your hair cut. And I said, Mom, this is how far we've come. We've now come to the point where now it was okay when I was young. That never happened. Because every single time she saw me, that battle went on. But I want to say, and I want to say this proudly to the world, that before my mother died, I went out one evening when visiting her and remembered to get milk on the way home. Magician and entertainer, Pendulette. To hear the full interview of this show, go to Here's the Thing. Magician David Blaine is most widely known for his television specials, where he often pushes the limits of his own body. He's spent 35 hours on a 100-foot-high pillar with no harness. He encased himself in a 6-ton block of ice for 63 hours. And in 2006, at Lincoln Center in New York City, Blaine spent seven days and nights submerged in a tank of water as a public spectacle which culminated in his attempt to break the record of 8 minutes 58 seconds for underwater breath holding. I witnessed this stunt live. Ultimately, Blaine fell short of the record, managing to hold his breath for an incredible 7 minutes and 8 seconds before he finally took a breath. Long before the body-punishing stunts and card tricks on the street, David Blaine came from humble roots. We grew up really poor, so my mother... In Brooklyn. Yeah, my mother raised me as a single mother working multiple jobs. She actually grew up with a really wealthy family, and when she was 18, she was living at the Sherry Nedlin with her family that was the the head of the Jewish mafia, one of the top families that was on, like, the cover of Time Life magazine, all these crazy things, and she felt that that, that, that the whole family and all the corruption was really bad, and eventually, at age 18, she tried to kill herself. So she went to rehab, and she had kind of a coming of age, and she moved to Brooklyn, never to really speak to her family for the most part again. And then she met my biological father. She met him in a non-denominational church, and when they fell in love, he immediately got shipped to Vietnam. So she waited for him. Where was he from? Uh, He was Puerto Rican and a mixture of other things. I didn't know him too well. I only met him a couple of times. So they fell in love. He got sent off to Vietnam. And when he came back, as many of the soldiers, he had witnessed things there that completely destroyed it. Like he saw his close friend get hung up on a tree alive and gutted and all these terrible things. When he came back, my mother had waited for him and... He was having nightmares and waking up with violent, you know, screaming, yelling, breaking What people call PTSD now. Right. So 
she got pregnant, when she told him a few months later that she was pregnant, at that point, he looked at her and said, I don't want to see you anymore. And he left. So that was it. So my mother put everything, everything that she had into me. We lived in a six-story walk-up. We started in Flatbush, and we went to Park Slope, and it wasn't what it is today. You know, at age three, my biological father showed up and was ringing the doorbell because I guess he wanted to see me and maybe her. And when she came downstairs, he punched her in the nose, broke her nose and everything like that. So that's kind of like my first jarring, and you know, terrible memory of things. But anyway, at around the age of four, her mother had given her a tarot deck of playing cards. It was a regular deck of cards with tarot images on it. And she gave it to me. And I cherished this deck of cards and carried it everywhere. Now, one thing that my mother did is when she had time, she would always take me to museums, libraries, bookstores, everything that she could just to educate me and show me other things, which was way more valuable than any of the toys that I've, you know, you could ever give or get. And so I would wait for her at the library. And a librarian that was working there showed me this simple, self-working mathematical book of magic tricks using that deck of cards I always had. So I learned something very simple. And when my mother showed up, I did this to her, and she went crazy, like she had witnessed real magic. And that was the beginning of the, the love for performing and learning more and continuing And you on. thought, if I could just get a Vegas lounge filled with people like my mother. <laughs> then I'd be sad. <laughs> I'm going to rip it. <laughs> but the other thing that happened was I was also born with my feet turned in. So Pigeon I had toed. Yeah, but really bad. So I had leg braces and it's like Forrest Gump. You know, I had leg oh. braces and things like that. So when you're in Brooklyn without a dad and you're alone a lot and you, you can't run and you can't be athletic. You escape. No, that's part of it. But you're also picked on. Because when I wasn't at the library waiting for her to finish on days that she was working later, I would go to the YMCA and I was on the swim team. So I couldn't beat the kids swimming because my legs didn't. And they still don't, actually, but they didn't work perfectly. So in order to beat everybody, I just wouldn't breathe. So at the age of five, I learned that, you know, they have to turn their head like this to breathe air. I would just swim, and I wouldn't breathe. So I started to, at a very young age, build up this endurance. endurance. Yeah, or this ability to just use your brain to override the pain, basically. And I would win. And then if it was two laps, I would hold for two laps. So at the age of five, I started to get really good at these types of things. Now I started to play games with the kids. So I would challenge them. I would say, okay, I'll stay underwater and you can stay underwater. And then when you go up, you can come down, go up, come down, go up five times. So eventually I was like that kid that could hold my breath underwater while they would hold their breath, go up for a breath, come back down, go up, come back. But, but I didn't even understand that the science of it was that makes it very difficult when you go up and go down, go up. It, it wastes a lot of O2. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the beginning. And of, do you hold the record now? I had it, but it was taken away. Why? Um, it was taken away by a friend of mine, Tom Zetas. <laughs> yeah, but I became friends with him through through the breath hold. When I did it on... Um, on Oprah? I, well, that's where I did it for the world record. But the first time I did it was at Lincoln Center. And I did it live on my ABC television show. So I held my breath. And I was just going for the straight, non-Puro 2 breath hold record, which means you don't breathe Puro 2 first. You just purge really hard and then take a deep breath and, and hold. And the record at that time was 9.08. And, and I thought for some reason I would build up a tolerance and, and somehow pull it off. But I cracked at 7.30.
So then I went back and I did the, uh, on Oprah, I did... Puro 2. Yeah, and that's a different world record, but that one I knew I could get. And the Puro 2 makes a big difference, obviously. Absolutely. And when you do, when you hold your breath for 17 minutes and four seconds, like toward the end, are you blacking out? Are you punching a table to try to keep yourself going? It depends. What Some, state are you in physically and mentally? I mean, sometimes it's really peaceful and amazing when everything is just right. You kind of go somewhere else, but when things are falling apart, it becomes layer after layer, and it gets worse and worse, and you're trying not to black out, and the pain is building up, and you think you're going into cardiac arrest, and you're fighting. So when it's not perfect, it becomes really bad. But when it's perfect, it's one, it's one of those amazing meditative feelings. So I'm assuming it was perfect on Oprah because you did 17 minutes. Yeah, it was pretty good, but it started really bad. It was better at the end when I actually realized that I made it and I wasn't you know, going into cardiac arrest. But the whole experience of it was, was pretty brutal. So the deck of cards, four years old, your mother is the beginning, if you will, of, of a sense of the power of magic. Yeah, her reactions and just her the reaction. way she was. And holding your breath in the pool was when you first began to embrace endurance capabilities and the advantages that could give you. But at the same time, I was also in the library, and I would be looking at other books on magic. So you see images of guys like Houdini, or specifically Houdini, dangling from the side of a building. And you look at this man chained up to the side of a building. You don't have a father figure. You're like, whoa, this is really crazy. So I would go to sleep at that young age, and I'd have dreams of these things that I'd seen on these books. And what Houdini was doing was kind of similar because he was doing things that you knew were real. Even at that young age, you could see it. You know it's not an illusion. When you're four years old and you have the magic book and you're doing the tricks, to, to go to the level you're at, is instruction involved? How do you go to the next level after being the four-year-old boy with a deck of cards and a book? In the beginning, it's only books. It was a different day and age. Right. You know, no that, that's how you learned. You learned from reading books. And that went on for how long? Um... Until the age of 11. Did you have a mentor? No. My mother called my great aunt, who sent uh, a check to her for a couple hundred bucks so I could go to some magic camp for a week. Uh, Did you? Tannen's Magic Camp. Yeah, I went there and Where's Tannen's Magic Camp? It was camp? in Long Island. Where you're from. <laughs> I entered the, the competition and, and I won, so I had all this confidence as a kid. And I started doing little parties and shows for but I never performed really for my peers and so not other than my best friends nobody knew I did magic and it wasn't Why? until you could have been I mean uh, these are all trite things was, to say, but you, you could have been the life of the party yeah but back then the kids are like oh you're some weirdo so it's right. not it's the opposite it's like get the right. hell it's out the of occult. <laughs> yeah it's something weird yeah. you know or nerdy or so so I kind of kept it to myself pretty much and uh it, it around the age of 18 I started performing with it where um all over new york uh really i would just i'd be walking around with a deck of cards shuffling cards in my hand and like the the guys you know that the, were at the parking garage would see me and, and i they'd react to just a simple shuffle i was practicing so i'd go and do magic and i would get all these amazing reactions from people and, and it was addicting who was at the top of the heap when you were a kid and, and you first became aware and of that? They're, they're just amazing magicians, but they're not doing talk. They're not known, but they're incredible. So they would just do these amazing— They're in a private world. No, yeah, well, they'd all meet at this little deli in New York okay. in like the early— 90s. Like 90. It was called Rubens. It was on Madison Avenue 38th, and it was, 
you know, it was it was not the deli that they would let us meet. It was the back room of a deli, and all these the catering. Would, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, For, seriously, right. none of that. <laughs> but the people in the deli were happy because they liked magic. So the magicians yeah. would do stuff, and then the magicians were. You know, Mo Greengrass. Uh, yeah, of course. Barney's Barney Greengrass. But Mo, the father, yeah, I went yeah, to school yeah. with yeah, Barney no Jr. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so Big Mo yeah, yeah, yeah. would do his car tricks at the table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you ever hang out with him? Yeah, he knew all my relatives. So eventually, yeah, it was funny. Though. Those were the kind of, And then my great aunt, when, uh, <laughs> when the one that put me to magic, Camp that paid my gave my tannins that gave my mother that the two hundred right? bucks <laughs> or three hundred yeah when so <laughs> when when I started to make you know a little money because I was on TV here and there which my great aunt at a hundred years old living in San Antonio Texas thought was I was a you know <laughs> this incredibly rich guy would order from Barney <laughs> from Barney Greengrass from the Sun Gary. Every other week, and she's alone in San Antonio in this little. She get a Bialy platter. Oh, no, and, and everything you can Rugla. think of: pastrami and lox and this and that, gefilte whitefish, <laughs> everything. Yeah. They'd ship it down there on ice. To her. I showed up when she died. When she died, I came there the next day to handle everything, and I get there, and again, she lives alone at 103 when she died. Lives alone. I get there, and the next day. A huge FedEx <laughs> arrives from Barney Greengrass, and it's you know loaded with this insane amount of food that nobody could eat. The um, when you do a show in the world of magic or illusion or whatever you want to call it, and I'm going to ask you, what do you call it? Magic. I mean, I just like the, the word magic because it's a general term and it's, it's easy. easy. Yeah, people get it. So when you when you when you think of Houdini escaping because a lot of his was escape right. artistry, is that viewed as very, very simple and easy now? Have things advanced? In- no, because that guy put so much in. So what he was doing, it was about like just being tough. You know what I mean? I think he was very tough and willing to go through whatever the hell it took. So it's like very few people have that kind of tolerance to this day. I mean, even if— Physical pain. Yeah, he was just tough. He was just, he, I'm assuming he would be—because you're a very physically powerfully built person. Not right now. <laughs> well, is there an exercise regimen throughout your career you've had to do in order to have the strength? Because a lot of these things require tremendous strength. Big time. You're standing Me. on a beam for you were up there. Uh, uh, 36 hours or Yeah, so 36 long. hours. How was that on your body? Well, that, you know, <laughs> when I was a little kid in school and I'd get in trouble and the teacher would say, go stand in the corner. I was like, come on, this is easy. Like, you stand for 45 minutes is supposed to be hard. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then you can apply that. So it's like, how long can you stand in one place? So that's really what it's about. So I would practice just standing in one place, and, you know, I'd put a chair somewhere and just stand on it and see how long I could do things like that. (laughs) (laughs) But in order to prepare for an event... No, well, I mean, there's a training involved. Yeah, no. When it comes to something like that, I would I'd build really heavy weight vests or chainmail things like that, and I would just climb stairs. So I'd add sixty pounds, run upstairs, go jogging around the park, do all these things, and I would hide it so no one would see. But you build up a real a real tolerance and a real strength and an, and an ability to to endure anything. And with a body that you put through those things, especially the breath-holding thing, I'm going to assume, and you don't have to answer this question, that there's a whole menu of things you just don't do. You don't smoke, you don't take drugs, you don't drink alcohol, or are you a little more liberal? I go through extremes. So when I'm in training, yeah, so when I'm training, I'm like extremely, I eat by, the, by a clock yeah. and by a scale. 
But when I'm on the other extreme, I'll have like, you yeah, know. When you're at I'll, the opening of the movie. Uh, <laughs> I'll, <laughs> no, I'll have another champagne. <laughs> no, one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> leave leave the tray. <laughs> but you do. Yeah. So there's a supreme discipline and then you let it drop. Right. It's an extreme on both ends. As you're getting older, is it tougher to do? No. I mean, you're not old, but no. No, but it, I mean, you know, you feel the difference and it's, it's, it's definitely noticeable. It's, it's, it's more work put in, but it doesn't feel more difficult. One of the things I read is your desire to do some sleep deprivation endurance record, correct? I've been obsessed with that one. Why? Just because it's so difficult. It's a thing during every endurance thing that I've done. It's always a sleep deprivation that's ultimately the most difficult part. I mean, sleep deprivation for me has really yeah. had a tremendous impact on my yeah. body. For me, at least. I, yeah. mean, my, well, I struggle. I have a terrible problem sleeping. Although they say, like, Edison and Lincoln, a couple of guys, used to take naps um, throughout the day. So they would only sleep a couple of hours a night, but they would take 15-minute naps, and Edison would hold, like, a, a set of keys in his hand. So if he nodded off, he'd drop the keys and would wake him up. And that proved to be very effective. So I think there's there's different ways to... Well, I'm in a different business than Edison and Lincoln were, and, and those guys actually, they looked like shit to me. They really looked terrible. They looked wasted, <laughs> but tired, I, haggard. But, but I think Einstein there, <laughs> especially, he looked like shit. <laughs> but I think there is a way to build Are you a, a good sleeper? Um, What's your normal constitution? Oh, like borderline narcoleptic. You are? Yeah, but I wake up every morning at like 5 a.m., and even if I'm up, like, yeah, I just wake up when, when at the crack of dawn, but um, I nod off very easily. Like, I could easily just lights out, and that's it. And I mean, mid-conversation with all of my friends or at meetings, I'll just nod off, right? And so My friend said to me that he was a makeup artist and a hairdresser in, in the movie business. And he said he worked with Elizabeth Taylor, and she would go to this place, the Clinica Giovanetta in the Italian Alps. And they would go there and eliminate tobacco, alcohol, salt, sugar, caffeine. They ate this very restricted diet. And these people would go there, and you would just pass out, numb from exhaustion, like every afternoon at like 2 o'clock and sleep till 5, wake up, have dinner, go back, pass out at 9.30, sleep 10 hours. You just slept for a month. And when the month was over, she lost 30 pounds. It was a weight a, loss. you probably feel amazing. It was a weight loss clinic, and, their, and the key to their weight loss thing was to uh, induce just these ridiculous amounts. I'm thinking yeah, but, myself, but the where do I sign part, up? Yeah, the diet part is amazing too, though. Like we're taking away salt, sugar, and all that stuff. Sugar is the makes, devil for me. Yeah, and it makes your body function that much better. What's your weakness food-wise? David Blaine can't the sleep. The forest pizza. <laughs> Luckily, it's in Brooklyn. <laughs> you still live in Brooklyn? No, I live you in do. the city now. I live in the city. Magician David Blaine. If you're enjoying this conversation... Be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More with David Blaine after the break. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. I'm Zach McNeese, in for Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. David Blaine is always thinking about the next way he can push his body to the limits. But for him, the best illusions always have some truth to them. I try to do things that are real and magic. So I go, you know, I, I do use a camera and project things, but I also will drink, you know, a, a, a glass full of kerosene, a gallon of water, light a fire on the stage and then put it out. Or I'll hold my breath for 10 to 15 minutes in a water tank on the stage. And um, like the ice pick thing that I did to you, I'll do that. So I mix it up. So it's, the concept is real or magic. What's happening decide. to entertain the audience? Are they like, are there bartenders? Like, are there waiters like distributing drinks to the crowd no, while you're holding no. your breath for 15 minutes? No. Or they're right, right on you the no, whole time? The way I used to do was in the beginning, it started with an act where I would do, I'd be underwater and I would do all of these magic things underwater. Like, I'd smoke a cigar, 
underwater. I would have an eel come out of my mouth. I would do all of these things, but it started taking away from that I'm actually holding my breath the entire time. So basically what we did is we took all of that away and just made it about the actual feat of endurance and let them walk around and feel it and see if it's real and interact with it. And that became much more effective. So it was kind of like when you see a guy that's risking his life for that entire duration, and if you believe that he's really not breathing, that stands on its own without the actual trick. So it was it's playing with that line of like how far can you push yourself before you crack live in front of an audience that I'm intrigued by. The deli on the deli on Madison was called what again? Rubens. Rubens. And you and are you a magic castle person? Have you hung out there? I have friends. Over the years? I, have friend, I have friends that perform there. Describe I, to people what kind of a function that serves. It's a, it's a private club. Yeah, there's a bunch of amazing magicians that you know that that hang out there and socialize there, but so when people come, they get to see these improvisational, sort of improvisational magic shows. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I went there years ago. But it depends, you know, who's there. So if it's like, if people were lucky to see like Derek Delgadio and and uh, and Garrett Thomas or some of these guys perform there, it's kind of like, whoa, it's incredible. There might be a lot of people who you know, and the same in my business, there's journeyman actors who are doing regional theater who are the great undiscovered actors. You know, they, they don't have uh, right. big careers in film and TV, but... But they're they, phenomenal. Yeah, they just, they just crush that's, you every time they step out on stage. That's, that's the, the way it's in magic. Yeah, big time. So there's guys out there who are that famous. Are fucking amazing, right. but that you'll never know. Is it because there's only room for so many? Do you think there's only so many seats at a table up there at the top? No, I don't think so. I just think, like, uh, there's different things to work on. Like, a lot of magicians complain about Houdini's showmanship skills during his lifetime because they say, oh, I could do that better, or I could do this. But Houdini was a showman, so he was kind of thinking about the the bigger picture in certain senses. So there are guys that could do much better sleight of hand than him or could could do moves that were better or routines, but he was thinking about, you know, the actual showmanship of it on a bigger scale. So, so. before you go out, whether it's on Oprah, any kind of endurance event you've done, exhibition, uh, any show you've done, whatever you've done, is there a state you have to enter? Is there a regimen you adhere to to get your mind yeah. completely? Because I would imagine you have to have the most intense level of concentration known to man. Right, which is why I do so few. Like, I, I do such little things because when I go into something, I put everything into it. Right. You know, the movie Houdini, is not, it's, it's, it's a wonderful movie. It's enjoyable, but it's a little shiny. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, yeah. Tony Curtis and Janet Lee and the whole thing. Yeah. But there are moments that are, that are thrilling. You know, and, 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 and you carry into it your obsession with Houdini and a man that did those kinds of things back then. And there are intimations in that world of the supernatural where they've got some kind of otherworldly dial tone that they're making their phone calls on there that you and I, that other people don't have. Yeah, that's the movies, right? Right, that's the movies. So in real life, you, to you, it's all reality and it's all technical and it's all your hard work and there's nothing no, otherworldly that, that, about that's anything a, that's done in that world. No, that's the stuff I'm most interested in is I like the idea that like anything that I do, anybody could do. You really believe that? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> okay. Does your religion come into play in any way in your life? I mean, that that's a good question. So the last thing my mother said before she died was, God is love. And I kind of, I think that, that that's kind of what I look at it as. I look at, you know, I kind of have blind faith in a weird way. It's funny, though, because I'm so skeptical of everything, but at the same time, it's like I feel my mother there when things are going really bad, so. Right. That's kind of where I'm at now. You know, in terms of my life, it's become so... Um, 
uh, so spiritual. But, you know, I actually just thought about something. I, I do think that, like, well, what you do is very, like, you said, is it, is it real? Or do you think the powers are real? And I think part of being a really good showman as a magician is similar to acting, because I think you kind of have to believe that what you're doing is magical while you're doing it. So I think part of it is you play into that that commitment to this thing actually being magical. You are a solo act, correct? You've yeah. never partnered with anyone. You've never performed with anyone. No, but when I when I was doing my tour, I have uh, 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 different magicians do magic while I was breathing pure oxygen, getting ready to go into the tank. So when you're shooting a project, when you're making a film, uh, like as we're sitting here right now, we're being filmed. What's the conflict for you, if any, when you are being told by people, now you have a collaborator. Whenever you start shooting, it's a collaboration. Yeah. Do, 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 is, is it all get worked out really, really easily, or do you find that collaborating with people is tough? I mean, with him, I'm lucky because he's an amazing addition. So, but but if somebody clicks well, but if some well, no, he just has a great vision. So, if somebody has a great vision that goes beyond what your vision is, then it works well. If somebody's, if you're fighting with somebody to try to like do something good, then it's a nightmare. But if you have somebody that's vision is, uh, uh, let, let's do better Compatible, than what you're doing, right. or or let's do better than what you're doing, then it's exciting. Because I know that in films, you know, directors sometimes are in, One intruders. of my favorites is uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, he was a good director. Yeah. He was very, very helpful. Mammoth's also the guy that directed the Ricky J. Uh, 52 right. Assistants. Now, with speaking of him or, or, or Copperfield or any of the more well-known people, uh, do you get, like, do you get an email every now and then and Copperfield says to you? No, I speak to both of them. Do you, do the those wonder, like, yeah, always yeah, wonder yeah. in that world, do they shoot an email? No, no, I, I saw that, no, man. No, you just, <laughs> you just burned that to the ground. No, no, no. Not yeah. like that. You seem, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way because I don't know you that well. I mean, I know your persona. I've seen you. And you seem like a very warm person. You seem like you have a lot of love in your heart. You talk about your mom. You have a daughter. And, of course, in my mind, you're in that tank for 17 minutes. You're doing one of these crazy things you're doing. And, you know, all of a sudden, you've crossed the endurance line, and you've blown a gasket and had a heart attack in a tank of water, and you're dead. Jesus. Does death hang over you? I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it's not like I have a death wish. So I'm never trying to go to the point that's, that I'm going to die. I train really hard and I study and I work slowly and it's kind of based on estimations and mathematics and I've done it this much so now I can do it this much and I slowly push and push. So I, I try to assume that I'm doing it in a way that I'll be okay. Um, but at the same time, I don't I won't cancel an idea because of the danger. You, so, you ever been scared before? Were you ever in the zone doing one of these things and saying, wait a second, this is not going to You're strapped into the rocket ship and... When the hallucinations start to come, like on the pillar, it happened, and uh, in the block of ice, it, 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 you go into another world. Things start to, you hear voices, you see people talking to you that aren't there, and you start to really go into this sort of like a... Uh, nightmare dreamscape but while you're awake so it's it's always been that's always been something that but but at the same time it's weird because it's kind of like amazing at the same time so this thing you showed me the pictures of the stage show that you've right. been crafting can you give us a sense of when that might be ready you might be doing that in the u.s when i'd say you'll have it here in about a year okay yeah and 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 it will be everything that i've ever dreamed of all put into one evening right. and you do it one evening 
I want it to not feel like a normal show. It's not going to be one evening. No, it'll, right. it'll, 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 like, it'll, come, it'll come and go, but it will be, it will, it will move and it will change because you can't risk your life like that every night. So it's, it's got to, it's got, it's got to live a life of its own. Thanks to David Blaine and Penn Jillette, and of course to Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is produced by Kathleen Russo, Carrie Donahue, and myself, Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Alec will be back next week talking to documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.